0: namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa buddhaṃ dhammaṃ saṅghaṃ namassāmi This talk um, given by, <coughs> by Lumpur Sumeto on the 7th of August 2003 at the Leicester Summer School is entitled, Knowing Not Knowing. Someone has just told me that their father-in-law died this morning. So, this is an opportunity for us all to reflect on death. Since this is what we're all going to experience sooner or later, As you get older, you become more aware of death, of course. I think Buddhism has a very practical and realistic approach to it. It's the end of one's life as a physical being. But at this moment now, as we're all sitting here in this room, we are all all alive and conscious. So, just reflect on the way it is. Consciousness, vinyana, and life is like this. We are experiencing sensory impingement. We see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, and our thoughts and emotions come and go according to conditions. And this is the state that we have been in since we were born, from birth, from when we were separated from our mothers, to the death of the body. This is the period we all have of experiencing consciousness. When there is a form like this, then there is form and consciousness together. Though in Pali you call that nama and rupa, the mental factors and the physical factors. There's (coughs) there's form and there's consciousness together. Consciousness gives us this experience of subject-object. The sense of being incarnate in a form like a human body presents this experience through sensing the objective world around us as well as the subject that is experiencing it. Our cultural conditioning takes place (coughs) after we are born. So, a newborn baby doesn't think of itself as English or Japanese or any nationality doesn't think of itself as male or female, or have any views about politics or religion or anything else. Yet it is fully conscious. There is simply form itself and consciousness. That's what we're born with. Then the conditioning process takes place through living with our mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, the ethnic group, the social class, the country and so forth. All these are impressed upon us through the conditioning process which we identify with. They come to us in that package, and it's from that that we form our class identity. Here in England, there's a lot of class consciousness. It's more defined here than, say, in America. Here people talk about being working class, middle class, upper class, or lower middle class. In the States, it's easier. It's just middle class. It never occurred to me that there was an upper and a lower middle class, but this process affects how we experience life. So I would uh, uh, I have great respect for Lumpur tomato, but having lived in America, um, <laughs> I would say that that's uh, that's one perspective on it, but I would also say it's one of the uh, maybe the most stratified society in the in the Western world. Uh, if you happen to be a Native American or a black American or a Hispanic American or even an Asian American, it's very different. And so that the gulf between the the different strata of society is is very, very wide indeed, so even though uh, I would agree uh, in Britain we do have a, a class system, upper class, lower class, middle class, and so forth <coughs> it's, uh, it's quite um, astonishing the degree to which uh, America is uh, is sort of a layered society, and the, um, the, the degree to which uh, people are advantaged uh, by uh, usually being white and middle class uh, and often male and uh, educated. Or the and then the uh, African American community or the Native American community in particular are seriously dis, uh, disenfranchised, and the uh, also the Hispanic community. Uh, a lot of um, <coughs> the uh, I say um, uh, current issues about uh, people coming across the southern border into America kind of focuses upon that un- undocumented immigrants and such like, and so that um, uh, it's a, a small technical point, but I would say that. <laughs> That even though that uh, the Lompoc experience was that of of being a, a more homogenized within America, it's a, it was very striking coming coming from England and and, and living uh, living here, going to uh, spend time in America and to be um, part of American society for fifteen or twenty years, it was it was quite uh, quite startling. So. Um, and uh, particularly the Native American, the sort of disenfranchisement of Native Americans that uh, they weren't—they uh, weren't actually citizens, even though they were the people there before the Europeans showed up. Uh, Native Americans weren't uh, citizens; they couldn't get passports for uh, uh, many, many years until reasonably recently. And I remember, um, <clears throat> as I was getting my my head around how American culture worked, and, and uh, uh, one time. Uh, uh, I made a comment about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a, a festival they have in uh, November, and it's uh, a sort of a big uh, family gathering. And uh, my understanding was that that uh, was that Thanksgiving was after the first harvest, when the the uh, European immigrants had been taught how to catch um, uh, catch uh, animals in the forest, the uh, turkeys, and how to find wild yams and uh, They'd been taught how to, to farm the, the land and, and they'd survived through their, that year and had gathered in their, their first harvest and they were celebrating that, that, um, a, uh, the, the kind of um, a joy of having survived and that they sat down together with uh, the, you know, some of the members of the local Native American community. And so I was under the impression that the Thanksgiving was saying thanks to the Amer- Native Americans. And so, and so I made this comment. I said, well, at least one day in the year the American society remembers their debt of gratitude to the Native Americans. And I got this blank look from the other people <laughs> around. We were, we were sitting in a park in San Francisco having a, having a picnic, and I said, uh, Walter Haas Park. And I said, well, at least one day in the year they acknowledge that they have a debt to the Native Americans. And I got this blank look like, what are you talking about, Ajahn? I said, well, it's called Thanksgiving. They're giving thanks to the, the local people who saved them. You know, they, would, they would all have died and starved if they hadn't had the advice and guidance and, and help from the Native Americans. They said, oh, they're not thanking the, the, the Native Americans. They're thanking God. Uh, really? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's God that saved them, not, not the locals. <sighs> <laughs> so, uh, Anyway. Just uh, as a, as a uh, small point, again, I don't want to contradict Lumpur-Sumato, but uh, that was uh, as a coming from this side of the pond to, to be in the States. It was extremely striking, the, the gulfs between the, uh, the different uh, layers of, of society uh, over there. When we're young, we're quite malleable. That means quite uh, adaptable and can uh, adjust to different situations. Quite, quite easily um, changeable in our, in our attitudes. When we're young, we're quite malleable. As we get older, however, we're not so flexible unless we awaken during this lifetime. The ruts get deeper and we get more entrenched in our views, opinions, assumptions, fears and emotional habits. Emotions that haven't been resolved earlier, earlier in life become problems when we reach old age. I saw my father at 90 throwing temper tantrums as though he were a four-year-old. When he didn't get his own way, he would sulk like a young child. These emotional habits catch up with us if we have no way of resolving them with skilful means. The perception of death, how that word death, quote-unquote, affects us, is influenced by the cultural attitudes that we're conditioned by. There are various theories. If you're good, you go to heaven when you die. But if you're bad, you go to hell. And if you haven't been baptized, you go into limbo. That's what I was taught. Limbo seems to be the dreariest place. Neither heaven nor hell. And then the non-Christians, they go to hell. And high church Anglicans go to the highest heaven. That was Lumpur Semedo's church. was a High church uh, Anglican, uh, Episcopalian church. High church Anglicans go to the highest heaven, front row, center and the Baptists are up in the galleries. (laughs) So when you're a small child, death is fascinating. I remember becoming interested in skeletons and things that society considered distasteful. Some people say, of course, that when you're dead, you're dead. Just annihilation, oblivion, nothing there. And others think that we're reborn or reincarnated. But right now, at this moment, death is just a perception for us, isn't it? It's a word, D-E-A-T-H. So recognize that when you say, death, how does it affect you? In polite Western society, death is not a subject you're supposed to talk about. When somebody dies, you say, they've passed away, which is a little easier than saying, death, because that's too stark. If you say, he's dead, it sounds a bit harsh, whereas saying someone has gone to another place or gone to live with God up in heaven is a way of making it sound better, not so emotionally charged, not so scary. Because death is the unknown to us. We're frightened of it and can imagine almost anything happening. So this is, is very true, and I think uh, all of us uh, have noticed that um, we, in ordinary everyday life, we, we kind of build these buffers around that uh, actuality of death. And so, uh, as I often point out, the uh, when, when people talk about it, uh, or trying to be practical in, in terms of their families or talking with others, they'll say, if... Something ever happens to me. If what they mean is when I what they mean is when I die, but we put these like four or five layers of padding around it, like if something something we know what but we're not going to say it ever as if it might not happen. Yeah, happens to me, Uh, and so that that's the 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 polite and ordinary way of of talking about it or. <clears throat> and you are literally told, you know, don't, don't bring up death at, uh, you know, over, over lunch. or <laughs> It's sort of a, not a polite subject to talk about. Living in a monastery, of course, is very different. You, know, you can be doing the washing up with someone and happily chattering, chattering away about uh, uh, birth and death and, and uh, the actuality of that. And so it's much more of, a, of a, uh, a, a common and acceptable subject in the monastery and far more realistic. And I feel that um, that the, uh, one of the great blessings of Buddha Dhamma is that sense of, of realism around death. Uh, and uh, <coughs> one of the, the things, sitting, receiving people, visitors uh, coming, uh, or people who are staying here as guests and talking with people every day, virtually every day, if not several times a day, people are, are asking me about um, the, how to handle a death in the family, death of a child, death of a parent, death of their, their partner or their... Their loved ones and um that and these exactly is the kind of language that is uh, is being used and so often what i'll point out is i say you know it's and just actually today <laughs> you know, in in a conversation uh with, uh, with somebody uh, that to, has uh several members of her family had died in recent past you know f- five or six different members of her family uh, had passed away in the last three years and uh and so uh just in the way that she was um she was speaking about it, and again not to to belittle that or, or, or to uh to be um, not res- respectful of that, but um the whole way she was speaking was as if this was a, a, a terrible shock and that was uh, you know something that, that um uh say kind of shouldn't have happened or um how can it be this way? And uh, as I usually do when someone brings that that kind of observation up, I said, "Well, well, it's going it's happening to all of us. You know, every single, every single person here, that uh, every one of these bodies is going to stop breathing one day. It's not a surprise. And again, you have to phrase these things carefully and respectfully because if people are in a, a, a tender state of mind, you, you're not trying to be too blunt or shocking or rude. But I, I, I feel it's one of the great blessings of Buddha that it, it brings that to us to say it's." Every, and when I, when I say that, when you make a comment like, every single person in this room, every single body here is going to die one day, something in the mind goes, oh yeah. <laughs> something is not prepared for that. Something is saying, oh, wait a moment, that can't be right. But because that's not the way that we, we think. We think of each other in terms of our personalities, our names, our stories, our activities, our, our roles. And I mean, how many of us walk into the silence and go, hmm, everyone here is going to die one day. <laughs> yeah, it might be, but you know, if you've particularly got that sort of on, uh, you know, on on a roll as a as a daily reflection, but our habit, the instinct, is to steer away from that. It's the sort of if something should ever happen to me one day, that <laughs> uh, uh, we have an instinctual buffering, a, a kind of a forgettery, I like to call it, a thing that, that 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 switches that off and doesn't acknowledge that, and so that the. Um, uh, I feel that you know it's natural enough, and that uh, in in terms of our life as living beings, then there's a shying away uh, from death, and that that's uh, something that's off-putting and and threatening. So that uh, it helps in a way for us to function and to protect our own lives. But what is uh, very helpful in the Buddha Dhamma, like we did the uh, five subjects for frequent recollection uh, last night, I think we yeah we did yeah at the end of the. End of the meditation last night. <clears throat> I am of the nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the, of the nature to sicken, I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So to the ego, that's all deeply depressing, Right? In terms of self-view, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. <laughs> Don't say that. You know, there's something in us that that doesn't want to hear that. And uh, so that the Buddha is not—he's uh, not being malicious or just trying to uh, say, <clears throat> you know, I'm totally enlightened, so I'm fine. But you know, you guys are still stuck in the mud. You know? he's not trying to make fun or or, uh, or just be um, uh, say sadistic, but rather it's a, a way of helping the mind to be completely realistic about uh, the, the situation that our life brings with us, just so that with our birth comes our death. You know. And that the, it's a single package, you don't get a birth without a death. It's, a, it's two sides of the, the same hand, you know, the front and the back of the hand. And so that even though it's a bit blunt or stark, as Lumpur says here, then it's also deeply realistic. It's that, yes, this is, this is what we are part of. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing. Those things that we think that we own, our, our friends, our children, our parents, our, our, uh, our possessions, our reputation, our faculties, the things that we think of as ours, uh, that we, we feel that we're the owners of, we're not. When we're not, we don't really own anything, and that uh, that uh, is, say, shocking or, or uh, say, a, uh, a threat to our habits of self-view, that no, I am uh, I am a child, I am a parent, I am a, a, a monk, I am uh, someone who can think, who can talk, who can move, who can hear, who can see. You know, I, and these are my possessions, this is my place, these are my, my things. And it's to say, well, those can only be relative. There's, there's that sense of owning. No one's really in charge. Nothing is really controllable. Nothing can really be owned. And so that it's uh, <coughs> it's shocking or startling. It's threatening to the to habits of self-view. But if, if that's looked at with, with wisdom, and why the Buddha encourages us, saying that you, these should be reflected on every day, these five subjects should be brought to mind for lay people and monastics every day. Um, it's so that uh, if you if you notice when you bring that reflection to mind to mind when uh, there's the initial sort of don't say that or you know, like sort of recoiling sort of pulling away on the other side of that or beneath that the heart says duh, of course you know, how could it not be that way it's always been that way why why is this a surprise <sighs> and there's a relief there's a, a relaxing. Like, oh, why was I so afraid of something that's completely inevitable? <sighs> Nothing's gone wrong that I'm aging. Nothing's going. Nothing is is uh, as it shouldn't be because my eyesight's going or my hearing's going, or or that uh, the person who was dear to me is moved off somewhere else or has died. It's like, well, of course. How could it? How could it be sustained? How? how why did I think it could, would be there forever? <sighs> so in that moment. The heart is seeing things in terms of nature rather than in terms of self-view, in terms of personal preference. So I feel those are very simple reflections, but they are extremely powerful because they, they shine a light. They illuminate all those habits that, that we have of, of assuming things are, are dependable or predictable. The world of, of objects and people uh, is something that can be relied on. And it's saying, no, it can't be relied on. And that, uh, and that also, when that is brought to mind, that sense of relief of, ha, ah, nothing is out of order, uh, yeah, how, um, uh, how peaceful and how, I say, liberating that, that is. You're not trying to hang on to something that can't really be kept, like trying to hold a waterfall. You know, <laughs> You can't really grasp it. It's just flowing through your hands. When I contemplate it, however, right now, Physical death for me is a perception, and that's a reality, a fact. I haven't physically died yet, so I don't know what it is. I haven't even had a near-death experience, so I can't speak of going through a tube into a bright light and meeting an angel. Which some people have done. (laughs) Those kind of things. Physical death is totally unknown to me. Buddhists have various theories about it, and a lot of them are around reincarnation and karma. So we speculate about what happens when we die. There's also a lot of mental proliferation about what might happen if you attain stream entry, say, or become a once returner. And maybe if you haven't attained any of of these, but have made good karma, you go up to the heavenly realms. And if you've made bad karma, you go down to the lower realms. In terms of the present moment, however, these are just speculations. I might like one version better than the other, I might prefer oblivion to having to be reborn as a toad, or something like that, but the idea of having to live as this personality forever in heaven actually doesn't sound that attractive to me. I'm not attached to my personality, so I don't see any reason why it should be immortal. I would just as soon let it go. The idea of being Ajahn Sumedho for eternity is not an option I incline towards. I can feel him kind of underlining that. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of being Ajahn semato for eternity is not an option i incline towards and so that uh it also this is a, a very um uh, say uh, a contrast that you have between many um, theistic religions or, or the idea of a of an eternal heaven and that um again uh, um by reflecting on on personality and reflecting on the uh, the uh, say the the feelings of of uh, being an individual or attachment to an ego, then the the more that you develop a contemplative life and a way of of say looking at the mind and looking at the reality of experience, the idea of being this personality for an eternity, for you know a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years, you know, or the like the eternal heavens that you get in some uh, some different religious philosophies, that. As Lumpur is saying, that that's not a very attractive uh, say, uh, idea of the same being uh, say uh, this particular individual, this particular perspective, this particular set of, uh, of experiences and perceptions forever and ever and ever and ever, a, um, Now some people might hear that and think, well, that sounds a bit nihilistic, so that uh, does he mean he wants to be wiped out? <coughs> But I think it's a it's a helpful reflection if we if we look uh, and see the the dukkha of identifying with personality, the dukkha of identifying with a body, and then by looking at that and, and not you not know, pretending that, but exploring that and, and feeling that directly, then uh, the, then reflecting on the idea of, of say identifying with a personality or a particular form for countless millions of uh, of years. Uh, just watching what comes to mind when that perception is raised in the sense of hmm. <laughs> it's, it's not very appealing. It's uh, something that's uh, that's not attractive. So I would say this doesn't mean that Lumpur Sumedho is uh, uh, inclining towards annihilation, but rather just seeing that the the limitations, the natural uh, unsatisfactoriness of being a person. And that's been reflected on um, a, uh, a lot in this book, and the, the title of the book. As it is, so don't take your life personally. So again, it's not a nihilistic or negative point of view, but saying how, when the mind attaches to personhood, when there is that sakhayaditi, that self-view, "I am the body, I am the personality, this is who and what I am," to notice the, the inherent alienation, insecurity, the unsatisfactionness that comes with that "I am this," uh, and that the the one of the great blessings of meditation and contemplative practice is that the mind can see that those personal qualities are perceptions that arise and pass away the body the feelings the emotions the, the memories our own personal story we don't have to take them too seriously the the things that the crises the achievements uh, the colorful events the, the the un the uninteresting events they are just uh, patterns of, of nature coming and going and changing, like the, the colors of the, the clouds in the sky. So the mind doesn't have to love them or hate them or make anything out of them. It's just, this is the way nature is. So when Lumpur says, don't take your life personally, it's uh, uh, the re- acknowledging the, the the delight and the the ease and peacefulness that comes with uh, letting go of, of self-view. Any... Questions? Reflections? Yes? <laughs> Well, the um, the the Buddha was not a white person; <laughs> <laughs> he was Indian, yeah. Or Nepali. Yeah, um, the I think that it's reflected in in much of the teaching, and that the the lack of of bias in uh, in say uh, who the Buddha was prepared to teach, and also the um, the welcoming of uh, every different caste into the into the community, and the sort of impartiality um, is also um, you know, the majority of Buddhists in this country are, are not white people. They're, they're Sri Lankan people, the Thai people, the Burmese people, Chinese people, Malaysian people. You know, so that uh, the uh, there is uh, an inclusivity. Also, I think it's it's uh, in terms of a cultural presence, Buddhism is pretty new in the West. You, know, you can say it's been about a hundred years or so that is since it began to put down any roots. Uh, the, the Light of Asia was published in the eighteen seventies. The Pali Text Society was the eighteen eighties. London Buddhist Vihara was started in the nineteen twenties. Uh, it was the first monastery in in the UK. And so that uh, it's, we might think a hundred years. That's a long time, but in terms of cultural changes, a hundred years is is not not very long. So that I think the more that that the teachings become uh, widespread, the more they they're sort of shared within the culture. The more they spread through um, the the kind of um, the mainstream of society, then they'll be you know we'd be picked up more and more by the the whole range of members of the, of the the culture. You know, I think it's one of the the things I, I really enjoy about Amravati is that it's a it's a very multicultural place. You have uh, People from many, many different nationalities that uh, that feel at home here and can uh, and use the place. It's also when we have school groups here. Um, you know, there's a very big range of uh, of national, uh, uh, racial backgrounds that you have for the the school kids, um, and so that uh, particularly with uh, North London and Watford and Luton and uh, uh, Aylesbury and uh, the, the towns around here, they have a, a very broad mix of, of different. Cultural groups. So I think you know, as those school kids as they grow up and they've been along to Buddhist events or they've had a sense of meditation and as they grow up and those things are uh, important and useful in their lives, then that that filters through society in a in you know, a kind of a broader way. Okay. With awareness practice, however, when it's not being asked to believe in anything or to operate from any theory. Or even to regard one's own preferences for the afterlife, but to recognize the way it actually is at this moment. For me, that's just recognizing that death is a perception. When I wonder what happens when I die, my thinking stops. I don't know what happens. That's a, and I, I've been around Lumpur for a long, many, many years, and very, uh, it's very common for people to say, "Ajun Sumedho, what happens when we die?" And his his stock answer is. I don't know, I haven't died yet. <laughs> I'm sure many of us have heard him say that. <laughs> many, many times, I don't know, I haven't died yet. You know. So, so that people assume he's going to have a theory that he's going to put across, but he's very much coming from his personal experience. I don't know what happens. This is developing awareness around language, terms, and the perceptions we have. Death, quote-unquote, can be a loaded perception because it's a mystery. It is, don't know. We tend to want to believe in authority and people ask me, what do Buddhists believe happens to them when they die? They think, oh, he's a Buddhist monk, he should know all about this. Well, I can give the various theories that Buddhists have and I don't deny them. I'm not saying that they're wrong, but at this moment, at this time, they are theories. Just speculations, ideas. Death, quote-unquote, right now, is an idea, isn't it? It's a perception of the end when this body stops functioning, when it's no longer a conscious form. So this helps me to recognize that I don't have to know what happens after physical death because I can't know. And it doesn't really matter. I'm not asking for some kind of affirmation to make me feel better. I'm just interested in opening to the present and seeing it in a direct way. I'm even willing to look at the fear that might arise with this perception of death, though it actually doesn't frighten me. My book, Mindfulness, The Path to the Deathless, was originally just called The Path to the Deathless. But the publisher said that death is a dangerous word, and people, quote, wouldn't buy a book with death in the title. Yet the word was actually deathless. Anyway, they insisted we put the word mindfulness before it. I don't know if that helped. And I, I was around when that that happened. It was uh, in about 1984 when Amravati was just uh, opening, and uh, it wasn't a commercially produced book. There was there was I think there was some thought that Wisdom Publications might might print it, but anyway, they 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 did say that that the word deathless has got two negatives with death in there, so it's like no 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 no, no. you can't that's, that's going to make it really unattractive, and. Uh, <clears throat> So Lumpur said, well, that's the name of the monastery, is the place of, of, of the deathless. It's, again, that was not very... He said, well, Amravati sounds good, but you know, deathless is, is not an attractive word. So he thought it was bit, you know, kind of hilarious, but anyway, he compromised by calling it mindfulness, the path to the deathless. Um, because his own feeling for the word deathless was extremely positive and bright and liberating. But the, the publishers like, "Oh, death, yeah. no good, that's uh, going to put people off. <laughs> the strange party on death and dying have always been fully booked. I used to think that nobody would go to a death and dying weekend. Who wants to spend a weekend thinking about that? But actually, there's a lot of interest in it. and People want to know, what happens when I die? What is life about? What's the purpose of it? What am I here for? What am I doing anyway? What's the meaning of it all? If you just grow up, get married, have a family, get old and die, the end? Then none of it seems to matter. The Buddha, however, was pointing to the deathless reality. That's uh, true. We, uh, uh, the um, uh, the, med- uh, the uh, retreats based around meditation on death, reflections on death and dying, are, are, are very popular. And uh, I've had a couple here where we would do a uh, what I call a death rehearsal as part of the, of the, the re- retreats. And uh, um, for those in those retreats, that's usually the. Uh, the uh, I don't know whether the word "high point" is quite the right word, <laughs> but uh, just for those of you, some of you might have been part of that, uh, those, and some of you might uh, wonder what, how, what that is, but uh, so it'd be about halfway through a 10-day retreat, um, and uh, we'd set it up in the temple, so I'd get permission from the Sangha to use the temple for this, and we'd set it out so that each person had a couple of mats and then a, a shawl or a blanket and a, a little pillow and it would be a lying down meditation and I would sit at the front and do a guided meditation and then everybody would, would lie down on their own mats, so women, one half of the temple, men on the other half of the temple. And I'd do a guided meditation with the, on the principle that uh, this is the last half hour or 45 minutes or, uh, uh, or so of one's life. No fixed time, so you don't know. And then when the bell goes, that's the, the, last, uh, the last moment and you've got until the sound of the bell fades out to get ready to, to depart. And so then I would uh, give a guidance of uh, uh, for the group of um, things to reflect upon as uh, the, the one's life is drawing to an end. Basically, uh, four different things to reflect on the things that um, you uh, regret about your own conduct, your own actions, the things that... Um, you uh, uh, you resent about other people's actions to you, things that you are grateful for from other people, that uh, you're, you're great and from the the world in general. And lastly, and this is often the most challenging thing to recollect the good things that you have done, to to, to rejoice in the good that you have done with your life. And uh, and then I would sort of bring those things up, and uh, it's an, it's an interesting. Um, Process because sometimes people would fall asleep, and so then you're giving this sort of potent and yeah. You know, here's the end. This is the last half hour of your life. Ten minutes to go, or maybe fifteen. Then someone starts snoring, and then someone else gets the giggles because someone else is snoring. And so it's a bit of a, you've got to navigate the rocks a little bit, you know. but you can do it. I say. You've only got 10 minutes to go in your life, and uh, do you really want to spend your time laughing at somebody else's snoring? <laughs> and if you're the one that's snoring, do you really want to be falling asleep when you've only got 10 minutes to go? So you have to sort of get a bit creative along the way. But they are very, uh, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, potent uh, process. And uh, one person who was, um, uh, it was a number of people who had quite, quite uh, profound insights at that time, and one person actually started getting um heart problems and and uh, had some uh, major uh so difficulties with his with uh, his uh, the heartbeat and such like and actually started seeing his ancestors showing up so it was a very more a more potent guided meditation than uh, than was planned. <laughs> he did survive, but uh, uh he told me about it afterwards that he saw these various uh, Ancestors of his showing up and uh, uh, (coughs) uh, talking with him uh, while his heart was flopping around somewhat. So the, but I feel that what uh, Lumpur is pointing to here is um, a couple of different things that, uh, rather than going into speculation and the ideas that we like or books that we've read or uh, such like, and and a certain strata or a group of, of Buddhists, mostly Western Buddhists, don't like the idea of past lives and future lives as sort of Buddhist nihilists and that, uh, or, or sort of skeptical materialists, we can say. And they don't like the idea of past lives and future lives and they all think it's absolute nonsense and rubbish. And, you know, the Buddha never taught about that. Well, he did. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, uh, rather than taking a position about a, a set of opinions that you like or you don't like, then what Lumpur Sumato is pointing to here over and over is that, well, we can know that, what does the word death do to us? What does it do to your mind? What does the, the inevitability of the death of this body, what does that do to the mind? How, do, how does the mind uh, work with that? Um, what do you do with a sense of, of, I like this opinion, I don't like that, that opinion? If you, if you hear someone talking about past lives or, or whatever, then if you have a reaction against that, what do you do with that reaction? Or if you're if you really like the idea of past lives and future lives, and someone poo-poo's that, then what happens to your mind? So it's it's talking about how the mind works with this uh, experience, um, uh, moment by moment. Also, another dimension of it is that um, uh, again, Lumbotcha would be obviously teaching in Thailand and in a, a culture where the idea of past lives and future lives is, is far more of a, a an assumption and. Um, and yet, uh, he would have the same kind of um, uh, emphasis that he would make, uh, that uh, if you want to understand death, you understand and rebirth, it's nothing very mysterious. It's not a matter of, of what happened before your body was born or what happens after, after the body dies. So you want to understand birth and death, just, just watch your mind. And he'd use an example like, say, if you're in a bad mood when you lie down to sleep at night, you know, when you wake up in the morning, uh, what's on your mind? You know, it's right there on the pillow with you <laughs> when you wake up. It's a, that 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 tells you about rebirth, right there. You know, if if that's what the mind has been dwelling on, you're you're angry with your your child or your partner or your your um, uh, you're worried about something, uh, then you go to sleep. That's on your mind, and then you wake up, and ooh, it begins again. So that it's a um, uh, a uh, a. It's a uh, a simple um, uh, recognition of how the mind makes uh, its choices, what it pays attention to, what it gives energy to, and what the mind invests in is what will, will carry on. And so oftentimes when people ask, uh, a particularly common question is, um, how do you align the teachings on anatta with the teachings on rebirth? What is it that's, re- if, the, if all dhammas are not self, what is it that's reborn? And um, usually I, I, I'll follow on from that, those comments of Lumpur Charles and i say, well, the simple answer, I'm not very good at short answers, but you can give a really short answer to, uh, to that. And he so said, the simple answer, the short answer is habits. That's what gets reborn. What you love, what you hate, what's familiar. That's what the mind latches onto, and that's what will condition what the, the mind is, is interested in. So what you were annoyed with yesterday, you'll probably be annoyed with today what you were excited by yesterday uh, that you'll be excited by today. What, what you cared about, someone that you loved and cared about yesterday, you won't forget about them today. You know, that'll still be the person that you care and love uh, to, uh, today. So that what the mind gives uh, value to, love, hate, or just familiarity. The food that you found most delicious, that was sort of reminded you of, of home and where you were born, uh, <clears throat> if you liked it yesterday, you're not going to just suddenly stop liking it today. <laughs> That's how it works. So that what is reborn, what is, uh, what carries on, is, is those habits of mind, love, hate, familiarity, and so on and so forth. For most of us, this is another abstract theory. The deathless, or nibbana, or the unconditioned, There are various ways of talking about it. It sounds abstract. Yet, because we witness people dying, we have probably all experienced the loss of parents, relatives and friends, death is real for us. And it's something that we know is going to happen to us all as well. We will eventually have to deal with it ourselves. Prior to that, however, we have to deal with the separation and loss of those that we have known, loved, lived with and had a bond with. We might even feel a sense of loss when some famous person dies. I didn't know Princess Diana personally, but I had heard of her, and a death like that can have a strong effect. Awareness practice is noticing this, opening to feelings the way they are. This experience of consciousness means that we are in a very sensitive realm. This is a sense realm, which means it is continually changing, and we have very little control over it. (laughs) We have to experience life through the senses all the time, as they impinge on consciousness, as sensations arise and cease in consciousness. So, in one way or another, we are in a state of continuous agitation. From the birth to the death of this body, there is always something affecting it. But this is the way it is, so I contemplate that my body is like this. There is always some feeling around it, pleasure, pain, heat, cold. And this is not a complaint. It's rather a recognition of being conscious and having a body. If you're unconscious, you don't notice. Whatever comes in front of you when you are unconscious, you're unaware of. Because of consciousness, however, whatever comes in front of your vision has an effect. If it's beautiful, you feel good. If it's ugly, it repels you. Because the experience of uh, of impingement from sense objects is based on pleasure and pain, beauty and ugliness, like and dislike. The conditioned identity we have with the physical body is what we mean by ignorance. You're this way, Sumato, and you look like this. You have a picture of your face on a photograph and say, you're a boy, and you're this way and that way. And your parents are like this, and your values are this way. This is how you should be. This is how you should not be. The sense of yourself is conditioned by these things. Your personality develops around the perceptions you acquire. It all comes out of ignorance, out of not understanding the way it is, not understanding Dhamma. Now in meditation we're exploring this, we're trying to get behind it. And if we were unable to do so, the Buddha would have been asking us to do something impossible. The whole point of the Buddha's teaching is awakenedness. It is a wake up kind of teaching. So when you get down to it, all the Buddha was really saying was, wake up, that's all. And that waking up is not affirming the conditioning that we have around me being somebody who's awake or asleep, or wondering who can wake up and who can't, or how deluded we are in this endless way. My personality will create the self into someone who has many delusions because of my childhood and the things that happened to me, and the mistreatment and abuse that I've had in my life. We can make a good case for being a victim. If we begin to recognize our true nature, however, we will have perspective on the conditioning That we tend to identify with. It's like awakening out of ignorance, and life is not always fair and just. You're not always going to get the best deal when you're born. You get what's around, which might not be very good at all in terms of quality. Awakenedness, however, is not dependent on any of that. This is why people who have had miserable upbringings or disabilities and problems sometimes find it easier to wake up than someone whose life is too easy, too pleasant too perfect in the material realm. If you have to go through a lot of suffering, you either get stuck in it or awaken. But pain can sometimes push you to awakening. Well, This is a very um, uh, a significant point in the, in this teaching, and that um, the uh, one of the downsides of having a comfortable, predictable, a carefully ordered life where you can make your own choices and you do what you want to do and you don't do what you don't want to do, and uh, you have a, a, a reliable shelter, a reliable sources of food, you have a, a regular connections with people that you like, and you can protect yourself, get away from people that you don't like. All of that um, perception of control, uh, which we which we think is very normal in the Western world and, the, uh, and a lot of Asia as well, in the more sort of developed in, uh, living situations, we can become very unconsciously dependent on that. And we don't, realize the, the fundamental uncertainty and the lack of control that there is in life because we're focusing our attention on the area where the illusion of control is strongest. So when things uh, go out of control or that they're, they're not something that we like or, or particularly wish for, then we're, we're shocked. How can this happen? This this shouldn't be this way. This is unfair. Uh, this, this is really uh, brutal. And uh, one of those the the great strengths to say that daily reflection of I'm of the nature to age to sick and to die and so forth. It's the the Buddha helping us to recognise yeah life is brutal, <laughs> nature is not all bunny rabbits and rainbows. You know, it's, it, it, nature is red in tooth and claw, as they say. It's a, it's a brutal and merciless process, and that uh, so in a sense get with the program. Wake up <laughs> the. Um, and as Po Paulter puts it here, sometimes when life is is too easy' it's too comfortable, then we we unconsciously become uh, addicted or to, or habituated to that ease and comfort and predictability. We don't realize how fragile and dependent and and uh, say uncertain things are. So another of the the very um uh, say um, powerful and related teachings that, uh, in this area that uh, Lumpur Chah would would stress uh, in his teaching and uh, Lumpur Sumaita similarly, would be a conscious uh, and active cultivation of the perception of uncertainty. It's called the Anicca Sanya in Pali. So To keep reminding, <laughs> keep bringing it to mind, it's uncertain, it's not a sure thing, don't take it for granted. Uh, your body, your health, your relationships, your food supply, your shelter, uh, the uh, these are not guaranteed, these are not fixed, That these are not under personal control, it's uncertain, it's not a sure thing. Um, the opinions that we have, that we think this is true, and this, is, this is false, or this is beautiful, this is ugly, this is right, this is wrong. Uh, similarly, Lumpur Chow would say, keep reflecting, it's not a sure thing, it's just a judgment. You call it beautiful, somebody else calls it ugly. You call this right, somebody else calls it wrong. Uh, that Remember, it's just a conditioned perception. And so, again, to the ego or to the, the, the habits of self-view, that amount of recollection of uncertainty can make us feel, "Oh, it's just making me worried, or I, I had insecurity problems already, and now you're making it worse. But it, it's uh, maybe threatening to, the, to eat the ego, to the, 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 that in us which wants to have uh, you know that when you call up your child that they're going to pick up the phone, that they're still there, or that uh, you're, um, you've still got a job, <laughs> or you've still got a cootie, or. A, in the uh <clears throat> that the um the things that you are uh, connected to or rely on it's threatening to that, but again, when that that's seen through or that, that's, that sort of curtain is passed through, then on the other side, the heart goes, "Of course, it's always been uncertain. it 's never been a sure thing. ha <sighs> so it's threatening to the ego, but liberating to the heart, there's this strange sort of bittersweet. Mixture that uh, that we have, and uh, in that, and uh, uh, again, I, I have to bring this to people's attention on a daily basis, <laughs> and that uh, to to be recognizing uh, that, and often it's when something ha- there's been some kind of radical change. They've been fired from a job, or their child has died, or their, their parent, or their their partner has left them, um, and. Uh, Something has been revealed as being very much out of control not uh not something that they that they wanted, and that the uh, the painfulness of that then they say, well, what do I do about this? Just like this, this person who came today who's had you know five or six relatives die in the last three years that the 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 thing that we can do is we can take that painfulness and rather than just trying to go numb and switch it off and not feel it or or the other extreme kind of wallowing in it and and getting lost in it and, and um, being overwhelmed by it, rather the, the whole skill of the Buddha's teaching is to take that pain and use it to wake up. You put it to work. If you try to suppress it or get rid of it, just distract yourself from it, then that pushing away makes it more powerful. If you just, if you get lost in it and and uh, absorb in it, then it becomes the whole world, and the world it's just a world of pain. Is filling the the mind, but if we're skillful, then we we, we kind of uh, take that dukkha, that that um, that painful feeling, and we use that as a, a as a kind of um, charge, like a, an alarm bell, a wake up call. Wake up, wake up, wake up, and so that then that uh, that dukkha becomes a a, a blessing. So in one of the teachings that the Buddha gives. In the uh, Iti I believe, he says uh, suffering ripens in two ways: either in further suffering or in search. And when he says search, he means uh, the search is like the mind going. There's got to be a way out of this. This can't be the whole story. Now, what's what's the way to deal with this? That there must be a way forward. So, if there isn't the search, then there's just more suffering. <laughs> So just to continue a little uh, little bit. So pain can sometimes push you to awakening. When we get into contemplating the unconditioned or the deathless, amatadhamma, we might think, well, those are just words, abstractions. Death is something I can relate to, but deathlessness? What the heck is that? Try to imagine deathlessness. No images arise in my mind. Just a blank. Maybe. And with the thought process, deathlessness goes towards annihilation. I can imagine heaven, at least. It's where I'm happy all the time and have everything I want. It's a wonderful place where people are beautiful and everything is full of love and joy, as I would like it to be. Hell, I can also imagine as endless torment and misery. In Thai temples, they often have lurid pictures of what happens if you tell a lie or murder somebody you go to these various hell realms where people are in anguish forever, but deathlessness or Nibbāna? That's something else. People who don't know anything about the Dhamma do tend to create Nibbāna into a kind of a heavenly realm, and it remains very abstract. We can create abstractions with the mind. we can create ideas that have no form except for the words that we use to try to define them. But some people totally dismiss Nibbāna. I've heard monks say, don't worry about Nibbāna, Don't worry about the deathless and all that. One woman in Thailand once said to me, You talk about Nibbana too much. You shouldn't even mention it. And she said it like that too, with an angry voice. What I'm pointing to is that in awareness, death for me me right now is, don't know. I know I will experience death, so it's easy for me to contemplate it, because I know I will definitely die. But deathlessness, in terms of an object, is something I don't know. I cannot define it or draw a picture of it. Often a circle or a blank or a tabula rasa or something like that is used to convey that sense of emptiness. What I can recognize now, however, is that I don't know. And that is the knowing of not knowing. The Pali for that is Ananya Tanyasa Mitindriya. If you're interested. Knowing the unknown, faculty. Now, that knowing of not knowing is not an ego building, is it? The ego wants to know, wants to have really good ideas and theories. People ask, what happens, Ajahn Samedo, when you die? And I say, well, in the scriptures it says this, Ajahn Chah said that. This is the Buddhist perspective. This is the Buddhist way to do it. The Buddha said so, so it's true. And I say it with authority. And they say, thank you, Ajahn Samedo, because I know all about it. I'm an authority. If I say, I don't know, they would think, you don't know? My ego is the kind that wants to know everything. But this knowing of not knowing is not from the ego. It is from consciousness before the ego arises. So this is like pure subjectivity. Often knowing that you don't know is if, uh, again, if we watch our minds, um, there can be the realization that actually about 99% of of our, of our field of experience is knowing that we don't know. <laughs> when the, when you try to pin down what a, what any one thing actually is, it's like, well, I've got an idea or a name or an impression, but that can't be the whole story. So I would say, just from from looking at, at my mind and the field of of experience, that most of life is very very mysterious, and that um, when we think we understand something or oh, we got it, we got it pinned down, then. You sort of dig in a little bit, and it's oh, oh my goodness! <laughs> Underneath the surface, it's even more mysterious. Like, like with uh, with uh, physics, you know, they say well, the molecules are made up of atoms, and the atoms are made up of neutrons and protons, and electrons, and the neutrons and protons and electrons they're made up of quarks, and the quarks are made. Oh my goodness! What are the quarks made of? Oh. Then it gets the further in you go, the bigger and more mysterious and foggy and blurry it gets, and they say, "Oh, don't even go there and that uh <clears throat> so that when we appreciate that, and so they might think that Lumpur talking about knowing, not knowing like well, how's that useful?" But what it's doing is it's helping us to be at ease with mystery, not feeling we have to take refuge in understanding or having a an idea or an opinion, yeah, you know, but rather. To help the heart to be uh, at ease with the fact that like well there's there 's a mystery, but uh, there doesn 't have to be a conceptual understanding in order for the heart to be at peace that that the the allowing of uh, much of life and the the world and the mind to be mysterious if there 's a relaxing with that, then the mind comes to a state of of wonderment, like wow, okay. <laughs> and so that uh, you're more comfortable working with the with the appearances of things you don't have to have it all pinned down this is what's happening uh, this is this is the truth this is right that's wrong this is good this is bad but rather there's a relaxing and that you're not having to fill up all the the mystery with an idea or an opinion or a belief but you're allowing that that mystery to to be what it is and that and when the mind uh, say and the, the heart opens to that mystery then it's not a state of lack or fear or, or anxiety or, or even incompleteness; There's rather a sense of wholeness and, and wonderment, uh, and that uh, the um, uh, there's a, a, a say a no need to try and explain everything. So it's that also echoes the Buddha's teaching about the uh, the handful of leaves when he's walking through the forest. He picks up a handful of leaves and says what is greater in number, the leaves in my hand or the leaves on the trees in the forest? And They say, well, ahem, you've got, uh, the leaves in your hand are very few. The leaves in the forest are many, uh, very, very great in number. So, well, what I teach you is comparable to the leaves in my hand. What I understand, what I know, is comparable to the leaves in the forest. We don't need to know all those that other stuff. That's, that's all superfluous. All we need to know is, uh, as he says in that teaching, the Four Noble Truths. This is the cause of dukkha, uh, This is the experience of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the the truth of the cessation of dukkha, and the way leading to that cessation. That's all you need to know. The rest is gravy. We didn't say that. (laughs) The Pali equivalent of uh, this. It's unrevealed. It doesn't need to be revealed. So maybe a last uh, last point to make um, uh, with respect to that is when we talk about death... And uh, this is a point I I like to make whenever we're talking about this subject or we are on these death and dying retreats. We talk about death and we always assume this is referring to physical death and what happens when we die as a a, um, a sort of uh, referring to the physical body and uh, those kind of uh, uh, areas of experience. But um, for most people... Ego death is more frightening and off-putting and more real than physical death. And for many of us, particularly in the West, many people have never even seen a dead body. Many people have never been around um, the death of someone close to them. And that's it's very, very common. That death is a, more of an abstract thing. Or, you know, it, it happens somewhere else or some other time. And even when you've died, the body is whisked away. And then even lying in the coffin, as Ajahn Sajito once pointed out, you know, most people, when they're lying in the coffin, they look far better than they do... When they're, when they're alive, they're dressed up as if they're on their way to a dance. You know, <laughs> wearing much more smart clothes and, and look, look far more kind of chipper and uh, cheerful than, the, than they were when they were alive. And so it's all sort of dressed up and hidden away. But ego death, um, me failing, me being unloved, me um, <coughs> losing, me being fired, me um, uh, being rejected, just those words, it's like, ooh, don't say that. And so that—that uh, that is a fear of death that we can all relate to. And one of the, um, the, the interesting statistics that I often quote is a, a study from, it's quite a long time ago now, 15 or 20 years ago from Harvard University psychology department. They did a survey of what people were afraid of, the top 10 of, of, uh, of um, objects of fear. And it was a large survey that about six or 7,000 uh, people were, were interviewed. And uh, sort of number 10 on the list was having your house burgled and your property stolen. So number 6 was being physically attacked and, and, uh, and injured. Uh, number, uh, number 4 was uh, being raped and murdered. Uh, number 3 was having your country invaded And uh, your your loved ones, uh, you and your loved ones being killed. Number two was nuclear war and the destruction of life on Earth. Number one, public speaking. (laughs) People were more afraid of dying on stage than the destruction of life on Earth. That's a very. I I mean, I did a psychology degree years ago, but. uh, that's a, and so, I don't have a huge amount of interest in psychology but, uh, or total faith in statistics, but that is a, an impressive statistic to me. That we're more afraid of, of being an idiot on stage, dying on stage, not having something to say, or forgetting your lines, or, or, or um, you know, <coughs> doing a performance and everyone just sort of getting up and walking out or falling asleep. <laughs> That's worse than the destruction of life on Earth. Nuclear war is preferable to me dying on stage. Like when you say to certain, certain monks or nuns, I say, would you like to give a dumb talk? No! <laughs> really, I'm not. I mean, I am prone to exaggeration. People will know that. But sometimes I said, Venerable, you've been away for some time. You know, I think people might like to hear what you've been up to. No! No! no, no. <laughs> completely non-negotiable. Like, but, uh, and so that, um, there it is. Yeah. The, 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 uh, so that ego death, and when you're reflecting on death and such like it's important to bring that into the picture, that it's not just physical death, but the fear of death is also the fear of ego death. Me being rejected, me being unloved, me, me failing, me uh, being uh, criticized. All of those uh, aspects of it is an uh, important area of reflection, and it's so that, again, if you want to understand uh, birth and death, then th- that's also an area to, to reflect upon. So I'll leave it there for today, it's gone seven o'clock already. <laughs>